This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Clarity by Jimmy Eat World with special guest Tom Mullen of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I think the thing that I like about it is every song has its own little personality. That sequence for me, I find myself fading. Focus on the simple things, the snare hits, the cymbal strikes, where the kick drum hits. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi, and join me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we're in episode 133. It's season three. Lots of threes in there. And uh, we are doing the third album by a band that you and I know, I think, pretty well. I don't know their early stuff as well as some people, and that some people includes my wife, who's a huge fan of this band. Um, oh, really? Yeah. She actually was really pissed that I was doing this episode, and she couldn't be a part of it because she's at work right now. So... Um, I didn't know that. I yeah, she actually has the. Uh, remember when you go to um, the record store and they would have the flats of the album cover? Yeah. You could get those. She has the Jimmy Eat World Clarity flat. That's the album we're doing today. So I apologize to my wife for uh, not fulfilling her wishes, which was to uh, well, it was also to have Jim Atkins on from the band to talk to. But we have something better. We have the man who talked to the man. <laughs> Joining us from the Washed Up Emo Podcast, Mr. Tom Mullen. Tom, thanks for joining us. Coming on the always, show. Always. I will always come on and talk about uh, these records. So thanks for having me. And I have I apologize um that uh you know Jim hasn't done yours yet. Um when I see him, let's make this happen. How about let's that? Ma- exactly. Because we need to talk some static prevails possibly next time around. I love it. Uh, so we can find your podcast at washedupemo.com. And you you have a very interesting format. Basically, every episode is an interview. Yes. And you've done, with some of my favorite artists of the last uh, couple of decades, like Bob Nana of um, Braid and Hey Mercedes. Uh, you talked to um, Ed and Ian from Sunday's Best, which is a really kind of uh, un, unheralded record that first uh, Sunday's best. Dude, the first Sunday's record. best record is awesome, and yeah, those dudes are great. I mean, it, it's it's been nuts how it sort of kind of it started and it sort of snowballed where now people are hitting me up and saying like, "Hey, I want to talk about the old days," and it's like, "All right," and <laughs> it's it's becoming, which is a dream, and I'd never thought this would happen, but it's turning into this audio history of that time period which you know you had the alternative press you know uh ones where it was you know four or five pages of 10 people with quotes but this is you know from day one to end their sort of timing and uh it's been really i mean it's crazy to hear people write and say you know where's the next one and you know what can you interview this person and words getting around where i can just set like jim jim had listened to it before um which blew my mind um, and so he's like, yeah, I'll do it. So um, very, very blessed to be able to uh, talk about a six-year time period <laughs> with the people that were involved. Now, is there a white whale? Is there one you've been trying to get tracked down and you just you haven't been able to get him on the show yet? I am close, but I'm going to get Sunny Day Real Estate. Um, it is, I've got enough people that have connected to them or have somehow connection to them that it's, it's going to happen. Um, if not this year, first part of next year. Now are you talking Jeremy or are you talking one of the other guys? Yeah. Jeremy. Wow. He seems like very, uh, uh, 
uh, press shy or, or not very talkative. Reclusive. Def Reclusive. Yeah, yeah. De definitely. And so I'm going through, you know, not the labels, but through, you know, friends and, um, you know, uh, acquaintances. That's how the Chris Simpson one came about. A friend of mine um, that I ended up being on an emo diaries comp with. Um, I think I, I probably told a story, but I was in a band that was on one of the emo diaries. One of the guys on that same comp was from Austin, knew, knew Chris and hooked up me with him to be able to do the podcast as well. So it's like those kind of things happen. So I've been very, very blessed, and it's been fun. You mentioned uh, your your history a little bit. Can you give everybody just who are not familiar a little bit of your background? Because you have um, quite a history in the music business. Oh. <laughs> um, do you want me to talk about all the labels? Or, oh, I guess. I guess sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I guess I, I started doing college radio and got free records and um, what started all of this was this music director that was into ska and it's half of the reason why I make fun of ska um, is and I do like Less Than Jake and a few bands but overall like not a fan but this guy had this box of records and he goes hey Tom I know you're just started at the radio station do you want all this you want to look through it and in there was the start of my emo collection it had and serenading um, by Mineral. It had Christy Front Drive. It had Jimmy World 7 Inches, like the 7 Inch that they duct taped together. It, that was in there. Static Prevails on vinyl with the 77 Degrees or uh, 77 Satellite 7 Inch in it. Like all this stuff. And I go, I can have this? And they're like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I like kind of like sneaked out and that was kind of uh, where it started. So um, went to shows, was in bands, and uh, went, went to New York and worked for TVT Records, which was uh, Little John and the East Side Boys uh, label in the band called Seven Dust, which was super fun. It was like a major label, but an indie sort of vibe. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot. Uh, worked at Equal Vision Records, um, and that was super fun. Worked Circus Survive, Follow Troy, um, Armor for Sleep. And then went to Vagrant Records and worked there for a year. And then uh, was at EMI, uh, records doing digital. And uh, and now I'm at uh, Sony at the uh, catalog label, working like Johnny Cash and Miles Davis and catalog stuff. So, yeah, it's been fun. Cool. It's funny <laughs> that, you know, Jay and I both have backgrounds in uh, in working for college radio, but neither of us thought to actually turn that into uh, working for record labels. We both were like... Now oh, that's over with now. <laughs> Let's well, just move on. That was the, fun. Yeah. The first, the first radio person that I spoke to ever, because I also did metal radio, and this was before Facebook and MySpace and all these things, and my first person I ever met, um, he now owns the bar that we do the emo night New York City in. Hmm. So, so I, whatever, 16 years ago... You know, we're still in touch, and he ended up to owning a bar and then wanting us to do this. But it was funny. The first time uh, we met, he was looking for me at a bar, and he couldn't find me. And he kept trying to look for a guy with long black hair and, like, a trench coat because I played a lot of black metal um, and on the metal show that I did. And I was in an Earth Crisis, like, windbreaker X'd up, you know? And... <laughs> He was like, you do not look like you play Morbid Angel and, you know, um, all the metal stuff. So it was, that was a funny uh, way to meet him. So you, did, were you aware of Jimmy Eat World when you got that box? Yes. Or So you were already – and you were like, holy crap, this is a treasure trove of Jimmy Eat World? 
Yeah, I, I was, I, I lost it. Like, I, I couldn't. I mean, I should look at my vinyl. Like, I'm trying to think of how many things were in that box that I still have. Um, I have everything actually. Like, I don't, I don't sell or, you know, get. I just think if you love this record, like, you know, you'll, you'll keep it. But, uh, you know, the Static Prevails full length was out of control. Um, the mineral stuff, the CDs that were in there, um, all this stuff from Crank and the Jimmy World Seven Inches. Those were the kind of things that popped out the most. Um, that. I literally was, you know, it had, you know, the radio ad dates and everything on it from Team Claremont, whoever, whoever they um, convinced Jimmy World to give him 500 bucks to send it out. Mm -hmm. Or it was was the AAM, you know, promo. If you got on their like really good list, you got like all the old, you know, the limited seven inches. That was all in there. So my radio show, when I started six months later after, you know, you had to do format, I had all my stuff. So I was doing a hybrid of like hardcore because that's what I grew up on post and then started to do more of this emo stuff in like probably uh second half of 96 that's sort of where i think you know we, we reviewed the knapsack album which was what mm-hmm. was it 97 mm-hmm. that album came out and yes. i think that's where you kind of saw i don't think the early 90s at least in our perspective college radio was sort of paying attention to that at least not we were at bowling green i don't remember that in like 92 93 emo sort of even being on the radar, but when you got into like 96, 97, that's where the, that's when like, you know, the, the second Jimmy World album was getting mm-hmm. played and, and, and Knapsack and, um, uh, Sunny Day Real Estate. Sunny Day Real Estate. I yeah. mean, they, they, they were on John Stewart's syndicated talk show. Um, I remember being home one night, you know, and it was like, or maybe then it was 94. Maybe that was earlier. For some reason I relate. No, that was earlier because I was home. But, uh, you know, the, but Sunny Day was definitely still happening then. Um, and yeah, 98, 97, it, I think before that, yeah, no one was really paying attention. Do you think that the, was the term emo being thrown around then? Or was it later that that became sort of a more of a mainstream uh, phrase or, or, or term for the genre? Because I, I don't was... remember, I remember that people talking about hardcore and you know those sorts or post-punk or something like that but i don't remember emo as a term until like the late 90s and it was getting applied to like promise ring and stuff like that yeah i mean the first time i remember hearing it i was at a hardcore show and my friend said hey you would really like you know this like get up kids seven inch and i was like okay like what's it sound like she's like it's emo and i was like all right is that like is that like emotional hardcore? You know, that's what I kind of, because I came up in the hardcore scene, it was like that next bridge from post-hardcore. Like if you kind of went, you know, you went Gorilla Biscuits, Quicksand, and then into, you know, emo, I felt like, especially on the East Coast. Um, and for me, that was kind of the, the first time I heard it. And definitely when I was at college, uh, that was definitely something that I loved. And I it was definitely not obviously out there and, People were talking about it in the if it was the bridge or if it was the Trust Kill message board or Victory Records message board, all those kind of places that we congregated. It was definitely used, but it it didn't have that negative connotation. And I think those bands at that time, if you listen back to some of the podcasts, you hear everyone's sort of like disdain or sort of like whatever to it. Um, mm. The word. Um, some people are very like, I can't believe that happened, and then other people are. Like it was awesome. Like we were related to this thing. It just happened to have a name. It was music, um, and I think to be even to be remembered 
as a band and be able to be connected to a scene that is now 10 years removed becoming cool again thanks to all these newer bands which we can get into but that's the really yeah. that's the beautiful thing about it that's the thing i love it that there's these bands now that i meet that are like oh my god we love your podcast we listen to this this and this and now we know about this band and it's it's like you're hearing it's the it's the cycle has finally skipped over my chemical romance and fallout boy no <laughs> offense but it skipped over it because yeah. they're not it's it's not hair it's not if you can you know if you barely play your bass or your outfits um, it's the music. Um, and that's what I, I mean, I didn't go to see Jimmy World because I thought the stage show was going to be great. I wanted to fucking hear, sorry, I wanted to hear, for <laughs> me, this is heaven. I wanted to hear, you know, Rockstar. I wanted to hear those live. That's that's what mattered. Well, let's, you mentioned Jimmy World. Let's talk some Jimmy World. Uh, let's give a little history of the band just so everybody out there knows. History of the band. Formed in 93 in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, vocals and guitar, Jim Atkins. Guitar and backing vocals, Tom Linton. Original bass player was Mitch Porter up until 95, replaced by Rick Birch. And then original drummer, uh, Zach Lind. So that's pretty good. They actually maintained the majority of the band for almost two decades. Yeah, yeah Zach and, yeah, Zach and uh, Jim are like, like childhood friends. Their first album came out in 94, self-titled. Uh, Static Prevails, 96 in, on Capital. Same as Clarity, 99 on Capital. And Clarity's uh, significant because it's the first time that Jim Atkins sings the album. Like, I think uh, Tom Linton only sings on uh, one song on this record where he had sung the majority before, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other interesting thing is that this was recorded partially at Sound City, in uh, Los Angeles, and there was a documentary that just came out uh, by Dave Grohl about the Sound City Recording Studio, uh, which is really good. If people haven't seen it, I suggest checking it out. And it was re- produced by Mark Trombino of Drive Like Jehu, and uh, also did the Knapsack album that we recorded or we, that we did an episode on. And uh, his name is what was the other one, Jay, that he did? Was it the Merc Time um, Cruiser by uh, a Miniature? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so he's been he's been the all star of this particular season of Take Me Out. Three albums that he's randomly produced. Nice. They sound nothing alike. And they, yeah, they don't sound anything alike. Uh, their next album, Bleed American, was originally titled and that was retitled uh, just Jimmy Eat World, July of two thousand one on DreamWorks. Their only album for DreamWorks. Uh, Futures came out in two thousand four on Interscope. Chase This Light. 2007 on Interscope, Invented 2010 on Interscope, and then uh, the new album, Damages 2013 on RCA. I didn't even know RCA was still a record label. I work in that building. <laughs> is it? Is it like? Uh, I, I I was shocked. Like I thought they were one of those labels that got like eaten up and just you know RCA merged has, and RCA has Miley Cyrus. RCA Whoa. has King. King Kings of Leon, Foo Fighters, oh, uh, a bunch of like urban acts as well. Um, I'm probably forgetting a bunch, but oh yeah, RC- oh RCA also has. Um, oh no, that's Columbia. Daft Punk is Columbia, but uh, yeah, RCA has a bunch. What the hell is Jimmy World doing on the same label as Miley Cyrus? I mean, that's that's pretty standard. I mean, a lot of these, 
I mean, if you look at a label roster, um, it's definitely across the board. Um, there'll be rock bands, there'll be pop bands, there'll be urban acts, and there'll be specific groups at the label for those genres. Um, at the EMI, I was actually a little bit of a Swiss Army knife where I could do you know, an urban act or I could do a rock act, but there were people there that were just doing like pop records. So they just worked Katy Perry or they just worked, hmm. you know, uh, whatever pop record, but I was doing kind of all over. So that is pretty, that, that's pretty standard. Uh, and I want to remind everybody that uh, if they want to suggest an album for us to review, they should visit our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And uh, we'll be happy to check out their album suggestions. We did get one Facebook feedback, and I think this is going to be a little controversial. Joe Royland on our Facebook page chimed in for this record. He said, for the old school fans, this is the album for the band. And unfortunately, the one that got them stuck with the emo tag. Personally, I find it to be about 50% great. Interesting. Some favorite tracks, Lucky Denver Mint. For me, this is Heaven and Goodbye Sky Harbor. Mostly, though, I find this album just a demo slash blueprint for the albums that would follow. Hmm. That's Joe's I don't even think that's worth mentioning record. again. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, seriously? That's, that's ridiculous. I, I think um, I understand this, what he's going for, yeah. but I, I think he phrased it not the way I would have phrased it. You know how you have, for me, this record is an album record. There's a record that you mm-hmm. throw on, you play the entire thing, and when it's over, all you want to do is hit repeat. And this, this for them, this one, um, actually, Chase This Light, I can do it too, but we're talking about Clarity. Clarity, I can, I mean, it's one of those playthrough, and I think there's so many tracks on here um, that, I mean, and the, I mean, we can get into all this, but when you play this record loud, it's, it cuts through. There's no, there's not like that, um, like radio kind of feel to it where it's got this lot of compression. Like when you play on a Sunday super loud, you can hear him, you know, hitting the strings uh, or hitting the, you know, the guitar strings with his pick. Like it's that kind of, you know, openness to me that I thought, um, you know, was kind of a, uh, definitely from Static Prevails, that sound and it kind of being abrasive to this being so clean and open, it was such a contrast. Now, as a sort of getting at and I, I i agree with in this way i think of this as like a bridge album in that they were taking what they had previously done refining it but not all the way in the way that bleed american or whatever you want to refer to it as 
became a much more refined radio friendly album and mm-hmm. lucky denver mint is like the first hint of that i mean obviously that was a single it was actually on a soundtrack for a movie and it gave them exposure and also and i learned this from watching or not watching from listening to your podcast when you asked him about one of the first records that he bought i think it was def leppard's hysteria mm-hmm. and when you think about you know when jim atkins is growing up and what was popular on the radio a lot of people probably wouldn't admit to the fact that they were listening to Def Leppard when they were, if they were in this type of band back in 1999. Mm-hmm. But the appreciation of songwriting definitely comes through on this album that you didn't hear in the pop sense on the previous records. And you can kind of start to... There's the harmonies, and I'm, I'm listening to it after I heard him say that, I was like... Wow, I can really hear that appreciation for like pop songwriting in that like pop metal format of the of the mid to late '80s that Def Leppard was doing, that I would have never connected until him saying that Def Leppard's Hysteria was the record that he first bought. And obviously, I mean the the steps that he took to get from there, from those first albums that he bought, to all the things that influenced him down the road to actually becoming a musician and then making this record are completely different. But I think this band and this album, which is where I'm going to disagree with Joe, it's so interesting because it incorporates so much of that pop element with so many different things going on, so much experimentation on this record, which is what makes it so cool and such a great listen. And they vary it so well. We we often criticize albums on this show for being poorly sequenced. And this album is is brilliantly sequenced. You never get bored from song to song because you don't know what's coming next. It could be up-tempo. They could go into a halftime sort of crunchy song. They go into a a little drum-looped slow acoustic song like 122395, and it all works together, and that's what makes this record so interesting, and it's such a front-to-back experience. I mean, uh, that's what I meant by kind of like you wanted to, it, it, it played like you thought it was going to play. Um, and I love, you know, the song ends really slowly and then it pops up with a, you know, really loud song or obviously Goodbye Sky Harbor has such a beautiful sort of experimentation thing. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it's like they had that opportunity to be in that studio, have all those ideas. I mean, if that, if this, hearing a lot of these songs from this era and what kind of went into it. It's really interesting to think 
you know, how many more ideas were swirling and what would have happened if it was on an indie label or something? Would this, would they have gotten this out? Um, I don't know. I don't know back then. Obviously now you can, we can, we can be recording a song right now and release it on Bandcamp, but then it was a little bit harder. Jay, how familiar were, were you before um, this podcast? Were you listening to Jimmy World back in the day? or Because I, I didn't listen to this record when it first came out. I went backwards from getting into them with Bleed American. Yeah, they were, um, I think they were a Napster band for me. So, you know, the early like, 2000s, 99, when Napster got big, you know, I started downloading Cursive and Knapsack and all these bands I had no idea existed and sort of went down that rabbit hole. And this was one of the bands um, around that time that I found. Um, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the band. I'm not, you know, intimately, <laughs> I'm not an expert on the band. So, you know, when I think back um, to, to listening to this record um, before I revisit it for this show, uh, songs like Lucky Denver Mint were the ones that were sort of in my head and what I remembered when I list, sat down to listen to it, I was, I didn't remember all of the slow, the slow, the slow mid tempo stuff, and I didn't remember sort of the, um, you know, the songs that are they sound like they were created in the studio, like you know, this, either the experimentation or the stuff that's a little bit more like layered or uses sequencers or drum machines or you know what I mean, the songs that sounded constructed. I didn't remember those, um, so those were kind of interesting to. Um, to to rediscover and, and 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 kind of like you guys are talking about the sequencing. Um, I, I battled a little bit with the sequencing. Um, obviously, you guys both enjoy the way that it's sequenced. You know, when I think of this record now that I've spent some time with it, there's a lot of songs on here I really like. In fact, there's no song. There, there's not a song on here I don't like. But I, being honest, I do find myself around track six crush when they go into that sequence between uh 12 and four for me this is how heaven I, that sequence for me i find myself fading and i'm not quite sure why that is because there's a lot of cool there's a lot of cool stuff going on and the songs are solid but there's something about i don't know if it just hits a, a steady tempo or a steady formula through that sequence but i start to like fade out and not paying attention and then when the album comes back to to blister and clarity where things pick up again i notice myself kind of tuning back in so you know being completely honest you know i like i said i think there's all the material on here is great but something about the sequencing isn't quite right for me Hmm. am i nuts or what do you do you think there's too many songs? Do you think like if 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 twelve twenty three and ten were B sides and it went right from Crush to just watch the fireworks and before Mythos is Heaven? I mean, I it definitely again it's I think it's that sort of you love the record and you kind of like accept it. But I would totally agree. There's you know there's times where if I if I am listening to it those around that time is when I would skip if if I would if I'm like yeah. I just want to get to just watch or the for me this is heaven. And, you know, I'll be working or whatever, and it'll be on, and I'll, you know, I'm not, you're not like some albums we review, it hits a span of the record where you're like, okay, I cannot listen to this right now. It, it never feel that way, but it's just kind of like I notice myself kind of fade out, my tension shifts, and then I'll all of a sudden realize like, oh yeah, I'm listening to, you know, remember what I'm listening to when it kind of comes back either to one of the louder sections, because a couple of those songs kind of build and get louder, 
or when you know blister comes in and things get a little chunkier again and uh, a little bit more you know upbeat yeah I, I think it could it could use a song or two trim i don't think it would hurt um just watch the fireworks is seven minutes you know that's right in the middle of that span so that's not helping so th- i think that's you know one of my only criticisms of this record is just it's just that sequence and um is it too long a, a track or two too long there's always an opportunity to trim when you have a 13 song album and especially when the 13th track is 16 minutes long which really then is you know most of the songs in this album are like between i would say like three and a half and four and a half minutes so that's really encompassing like four songs when you think about the length so if they cut if this was a 10 or 11 song album i mean it'd be jam-packed but i think that those songs i think the thing that i like about it is every song has its own little personality they do just enough where mm. i don't feel like anything gets repeated from song to song whether it's the tempos change a little bit enough or they add different instrumentation, whether it's bringing in strings and, and bells and timpani and um, whether, like I mentioned, loop drums or piano or something like that. There's always something that they add as a little bit of flavor to each song to give it a little bit of uniqueness that probably helps more than anything. Because I think if you took away a lot of that, it would really sound samey. But that's what adds the personality to the album, what makes it so unique and interesting. And isn't that a little counter to the genre? I mean, that's the other thing I, I sort of was struck by when I re-listened to this, is that, I don't know, when I think of emo, I think of a pretty straight, you know, five-person format, two guitars, you know, in terms of production, usually, are, you know, a room sound, a live band sound. For some reason, I don't think of emo as having as much, you know, production and layering and instrumentation and experimentation that goes on for a lot of this record. I thought the records during that time, I mean, like the American football record was beautifully recorded and has tons of layers. I definitely think, I mean, there's, you know, emo, I mean, uh, Jim mentioned too on the podcast of mine, like Screamo, that was what was his to him. It was, you know, all these bands that, actually were screaming <laughs> you know it wasn't like they were wailing almost uh if it was like frail or um you know there's a bunch of philly bands I'm, I'm forgetting them off the top of my head um but they, they, you know that was sort of what was happening at that moment that was emo and then for this record definitely was that sort of holy shit this is on this is the second release on capital you know the first one like th- it was sort of a all or nothing like this is this is that's what I felt like too when they did it. It was like, well, this is what it is. We've got nowhere else to go but here. Um, <laughs> and if it failed, then it would fail and they'd do something else. But And it ended up being that bridge for them. Um, it kind of helped them along enough. Um, but I'm trying to think of some other records that there's very few around that time that sound this good loud. That's what I meant earlier. Like there's very few that um, can uh, kind of hold a candle. And if I'm talking out my ass, please tell me. I just no. I'm just, I actually, <laughs> no, I had a question. Do you know why Jim Atkins took over the vocals for this album and then eventually the band? Was that a conscious decision that the band made, like that you know that Tom wasn't cutting it essentially, or was it you know? Do, do you have any insight into that? From my faint memory of this, I think it was just. Um, and if someone will correct me, that's fine. But for my faint memory was that this was um, stuff that, you know, Jim had written 
and that was stuff that he was singing. It was, you know, because they both wrote together or they both wrote. So, um, you know, these were mostly his songs or um, that's the sort of the thing I remember. And if uh, if it's wrong, then it's wrong. But that's the from the, my memory. Uh, that is what I think. It's a pretty radical t- thing to do. I mean, they had had yeah. two albums and multiple EPs and then you go, oh, yeah, now the other guy's going to sing. Like, I can't think of a, another band that without changing their singer... Like mm-hmm. just said, now the other guy in the band's gonna be the lead singer. Like that's that's a pretty bold move to make when you've and you're on a major label. It would be like Death Cab for Cutie going to a major label and then go, now the bass player's gonna Chris Wallace is gonna do all the singing now. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. That's just that's kinda crazy. Is Blister to the other song with the other singer? Yeah. Yes. Does that one reminded me a lot of uh Hey Mercedes? Which um, that's one of the things I liked about the record too. Is I think you mentioned Tim. Is like every song has a, even even the upbeat like more hard rockish oriented ones still have like a slightly different flavor to each one. So that one kind of reminded me of, of that band. And then um, Goodbye Sky Harbor. I, it was almost like a Shiner kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you know kind of gotten to the, almost. Uh, that's, there's like a weird time signature or a weird like accent going on. And it's like really methodical sounding in terms of how everything builds. And it reminded me a lot of that band. And there was just so many, I guess, colors and variations on this band that I didn't really perceive the first go around listening to them, particularly this album, that uh, that I started to peel off, you know, and start to figure out. Yeah, I was also able to pick up on the lyrics a bit more. And um, doing so, I, I think... My, my favorite song on the record is Your New Aesthetic. Because uh, in reading the lyrics for that, it's sort of like the emo version of Radio Radio by Elvis Costello. Where it's essentially like bashing the music industry. Um, I think uh, I jotted down some of the lyrics. It was... Um, uh, he starts out with singing, We're lowering the standard in the process selective. The formula is too thin, but it takes more than one person, so everyone jump in. I'll miss you when you're just like them. So it's, uh, I, I think he's taking a shot at maybe some of the bands that, I don't know, that were sort of selling out to make a lot of records and make, or sell out of records and sort of adopt a more radio friendly sound. I don't know who he's directing that at possibly, but there were a lot of bands grabbing onto the big money of uh, major labels at that point. So I don't know. What do like you guys them? think about that? <laughs> yeah, but they didn't really. If anything, that I mean, this record didn't sell well when it came out. It wasn't a huge hit. It's only been sort of glorified in retrospect. I actually wrote an article about this, um, which I should have. I can I can try to pull up while I'm doing. It. I wrote it for the school newspaper, and I wrote about this record. And the last paragraph is: One day you might see these guys in it in an arena. This is the uh, record. Um, so there were. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a dork with this record, but there were other people in the circle being like, "How are people not?" taking notice of this band um Mm -hmm. and i think it was just kind of perfect that the following record sort of broke out and it was such a tight-knit thing this was definitely a bridge to that uh and it just you know i think yeah you know being on a major label and seeing all those bands and um having you know all success and then they're this band that kind of you don't they didn't sound like anybody at the time there wasn't any especially on a major there weren't that many bands like then and they were kind of the first person picked uh you know sunny day broke up 
before mineral said no christian from drive said no so it was uh they were kind of the ones yeah in terms of their sound and more so on bleed american but you definitely get it on here and it, i i thought this when the bleed american album came out because it was right around the time that weezer reunited and put out that third weezer album i think that was like mm-hmm. 99 or 2000 or 2001 mm-hmm. or something like that to me jimmy Eat World was like the serious version of weezer in both like the vocal sound like it was poppy but not sugary in the in the you know it wasn't like they are now um but i guess pinkerton probably was playing in my mind at that time too but they had that guitar crunch that very few bands are able to carry through today i'm thinking like you know in terms of bands that are rock bands you have like foo fighters exist today and jimmy world and weezer and a lot of other bands, there aren't a lot of other bands that are actually what I would consider like straight up rock bands. Because I don't consider, I don't think Jimmy Eat World's an emo band anymore. I think they stopped being an emo band. Um, well, they're one of the few record. bands, the bands that you just mentioned, that's a select few that are able to maintain some sense of edge, but still be very radio friendly. And frankly, a band that girls will like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know I, I mean, mean that's. Th- they, they definitely broke through. I mean, it, it's now they can do whatever they want. I mean, what a great spot to be in, to have a fan from the Static Prevails era and the Clarity era and then every other thing. And, like, you just build on that. So you're playing this show, and you've got such a plethora of rec- songs to play from. And this record in, in particular is so personally connected um, to a, that scene, that time frame, and them. Um it just uh i think people that you know like this record and 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 think of think of that moment because it was before everyone liked them you know you wore the the t-shirt at school no one cared bleed american well self-titled came out and you know then they're all they're all into it and everyone's kind of so this was sort of the um you remember that time of this was when this band was like really coming into their own that's what I that I always think about that um, with this with this record um, and sort of the feelings behind it. Do you guys have the expanded edition? Yes. No. So I thought I found it interesting that the last track is the demo for Sweetness. Yes, that was written during then, and they yeah. used to end their shows with Sweetness. That was sort of the oh god, here we go again. They're going to play Sweetness, and it was you know on a um, you know it was on a uh, was it a EP? I believe, um, and now it's obviously the middle, um, and every show. But it was, uh, you know, that was the. There were some great songs in that time frame. Um, they wrote a song called "No Sensitivity" um, around that same time frame as well. That was on a EP, and I just loved that they still, you know, they did something on "Feel By Ramen" around that time. It was just they still kind of had their feeling or they had their roots with all the sort of indie as they were going pop and everyone went along for the ride. It wasn't like a fuck you. You guys are selling out. It was, you guys are still doing things in the scene. You are touring with the right bands. You guys are all good. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Cause a lot of bands that did make the jump, uh, they didn't survive that in terms of their fan base. A lot of, you know, they tried to go, I'm thinking of like Jawbox trying to go and yeah. like stone temple pilots. And that turns into, a disaster and the band basically putting out you know one more album 
after their major label debut and sort of calling it quits and Jay Robbins sort of retreating back to uh, to Discord with um, with Burning Airlines. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of those bands that tried to make the jump that just their fans just went, nope, not going to not going to do it. Where Jimmy World was like able to manage it, which is you never know. I mean, like you said, maybe they, they kept their ties and they played with the right bands and continued to. Um, you know, foster relationships that mattered, and maybe those bands didn't. But I mean, I think thinking back, this is the this is the important record. This is if we were talking about any other record from the you know if we were talking about Bleed American today, I still would think this one is their most important one because it connected them still with the past whilst going forward and getting a ton of new fans, and then was such an easy way to then go to Bleed American. Um, and kind of then it was bang. Then it's out there. <laughs> they are on the pay, you know front page. They're on you know radio. You know I, I've saved some stuff from that era um, and you know clarity as well. And it's just it's just interesting to see what's you know if it was radio station stuff or if it was uh, you know if it was soundtrack or sync. All those kinds of things like how things had changed and it was such an important record for them. Now, I mentioned uh, Mark Trombino when we were doing the ramp-up, and I mentioned that he also did uh, the A Miniature, or it's called Miniature, I guess. We're not supposed to say the A. Uh, album from 95, Merc Time Cruiser. And then he also did the, uh, the Knapsack album, which was uh, This Conversation is Ending Starting Right Now, which was in 98. And then besides that, he worked on albums from Boilermaker, No Knife, um, obviously, Rocket from the Crypt and uh, Drive Like Jehu, uh, Mineral. Let's see what else. I'm just looking at his page real, real. He did the second Smile album. He did uh, that Creeper Lagoon album that came out on DreamWorks. So I think uh, Mark Trombino might be the uh, emo Jack and Dino. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys heard about his donut shop in LA? No. He has a donut shop. And the donuts are named. A lot of them are named after um, emo bands. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's a donut yeah. called Jimmy Eat World. No, I forget. Jimmy Eat uh, donut. I think it's like Custard Front Drive. Hold on, I'll I'll find it. Um, <laughs> but uh, is, I'm actually trying awesome. to actually. I actually I, I wrote about this on on Twitter like a few weeks ago. Before, when you typed Mark Trombino into the Google search, what would come up? You know, it would be like, drive like Jehu or whatever. Now, if you type Mark Trombino, donut comes up first. (laughs) Uh, So, obviously, um, things have changed. Uh, Let me see here. You're right, it does. Holy crap. Yep. It goes donut, Mark Trombino donut, Mark Trombino producer, Mark Trombino donut friend. I don't even know what donut friend means. (laughs) That's the name of the store. Oh, Donut uh, Friend. Yeah, so oh. that's the name of the store in L.A. And, oh, it's Jimmy Eat Swirl. That's what it's called. Um, <laughs> but but it, that's the kind of thing that I do, guys. That's that's what I do for everybody. I, I make sure that if you're looking up, <laughs> you know, Mark Trombino, you know that it's Donut. Um, where's another one? There's some good ones. Uh, the Promise Ring, obviously. Uh, Dag Nutty. Rites of Sprinkles. Uh, Chocolate from a Crypt. Bacon 182, the Gorilla Biscuit, the Cream Syndicate, Coconut of Conformity, GG Almond, um, Drive Like Jelly, uh, the Starting Lime. I thought that was funny. The 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 Jelly Sound, uh, Fudge Gazi, Fudge Fudge Gazi, 
Custard Front Drive. There we go. And Jimmy Eats Swirl. I have to go to there. <laughs> and these are all. So I'm, I, I, I go to LA often. My next trip that we will, uh, I will be going to this. And uh, oh, summer 2013. I hope it opens up soon. Do they um, uh, ship? Does he ship his donuts? It is not open yet. Oh, it's not open yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've actually pitched him if I could DJ the opening. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> because because <laughs> he's got to have totally... one of these bands play. I mean, he's got to have like Jimmy World play at the opening or something like that. I know. I was like, I mean, my Eric, God. I actually thought that the Highness might play, which is Eric from Christie Front Drive's um, new band. Um, they sound like like Hum and Christie Front Drive and like Helmet. Um, I thought All they good might play. Sounds. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know. That might be uh, that would be amazing if they played because it would be kind of a newer band. But yeah, so anyway, sorry, tangent on Mark Trembino, but he owns a donut shop called Donut Friend. <laughs> That's awesome. In Los in Los Angeles, opening later, twenty thirteen. Any anybody who's putting more donuts into the world is is uh, doing God's work as far as I'm concerned. So yes. That's fine by me. One of the things I wanted to mention, because we had talked about the the diversity of tracks on this record. The slow tracks, and one of the I read an article on AbsolutePunk.net. There was an interview where they did a track by track dissection of this record, and they said uh, Jim Atkins wrote or, or said said I was, I was listening to a lot of low at the time, which you can t- tell from the extended cymbal snare drum pattern and held out vocals toward the end. He's talking about um, the first song on the record, Table for Glasses. He said I like how sparse it stays until the kick drum finally enters at the lead my skeptic light part recording this song taught us and i think this is the key part here taught us that if you aren't doing a lot it doesn't take a lot to get a big dynamic impact i think that's a really interesting thought because a lot of bands don't ever reach that consensus where it's sometimes it's the notes you don't play than the notes that you are playing and um you know i don't know how old these guys were at the time i'm guessing they were in their mid-20s when they made actually, this record, uh, no, the, I think it was earlier. They're um, during the early twenties. Yeah, because they're like mid thirties now, mid to late thirties now. So probably, yeah, around that. They're definitely young. They weren't like, yeah. Anyway, I think. Well, they were I sleeping on the floor of their manager's office. Yeah, for so the that, entire that seemed... time that they were making this record. I don't think you'd LA. do that when you were late twenties. I think no, you'd be you... like, all right, that's enough. Yeah, you're you're over that shit when you're in your, your late twenties. Yeah. Then you're like, get me a goddamn hotel room. Yep. Yeah, you're only gonna sleep in sleeping bags for a month if you're if you're twenty two and you're like you you don't give a shit at that point. But uh I think that that's interesting because I don't think and in and, and it come and maybe with not just emo bands, but just bands in general, they don't necessarily think in terms of what they shouldn't be doing. And they, they always think about, you know, layering and putting more on and adding another guitar layer and stuff like that. That's what the studio offers. But they sort of learned the opposite while they were in the studio, which was peel it back. You know, focus on the simple things, the snare hits, the cymbal strikes, where the kick drum hits. I'm wondering if you guys picked up on that. Because Low was actually, when I first heard that the opening track again, after not hearing it in a while, I was like, that's a band that I don't think gets mentioned a lot in terms of the 90s because they're such an oddball sort of band and that genre of slow core, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of gets overlooked. But the fact that they were getting influenced by that, I um, wonder what you guys thought about 
low entering the equation. Well, I'm not that familiar with low, but I, I did notice the res there was a restraint to the guitar playing that was not, I wouldn't consider typical for this type of band. Um, it seems like a lot of the bands do this kind of thing I think of as like there's you know one guitar doing the, the riff, but then there's another guitar that's basically either doing something that goes between dissonance and melody or just kind of a weird, it kind of adds the, you know, oddness or the, the interest to, you know, some, and sometimes it gets, I'm thinking of like a, say like hot rod circuit. Like sometimes it even gets like kind of spastic and, or like at the drive in, you know, kind of crazy and off kilter. Mm -hmm. um, they don't do that at all. I mean, there's, they're either completely synced up. There'll be two guitars totally synced up or there'll be some very restrained, um, you know, in a chorus, there'll be like a counter melody played or, you know, uh, there'll be even in a couple parts I noticed where like in the second verse of I can't remember which song, but they just the other guitar all of a sudden just does like a a rhythm accent. Like it's the same chords, but he just strums it different or there'll be right before the chorus. The second guitar will do, you know, something along that line where it won't be like anything nuts is just enough to add a little bit of like tension or drama right before you shift the part and i was kind of struck by like yeah just how much restraint and how just how well thought through the guitar stuff was and that it, they never got in each other's way but you know the the, the the parts were always complementing each other and never in each other's way i think that's a good observation in terms of the parts i i think well let me back up for a sec one of the things i read was how much they allowed themselves to experiment, which I think was a really interesting thing because I think of a lot of bands going into the studio when they have, I guess, the label money and thinking in terms of writing songs and, and trying to reach this, like, we got to write hits sort of thing where they were thinking of, we got this money and we have this time. Let's do anything that's in our mind. Let's, let's take all the chances we can. Yeah which is sort of counterintuitive, but ended up producing a much better end result. Well, they, yeah, and they did it, but they did it without, without, um, it doesn't feel cluttered or, you know, overly dense. Everything's still, there's tons of experimentation here, but everything has its own space. Right. That's what I meant earlier. I mean, it's so open when you listen to it. Um, I hope that, mm -hmm. I mean, that term makes sense. Just you listen to it right. and it just feels like you're in a field. You're not in a cramped apartment when you're listening to it. That's how I try to, you know, it's it comes out so clean. Um, and I, I totally agree that there's these little things that, like you said, that little guitar riff that was kind of played differently. But it's it's you're able to zero in on that because it was it's so open. You can kind of mm -hmm. close your eyes and I mean, Goodbye Sky Harbor. If you close your eyes and listen to that song, you can pick out different things to listen to and focus on it. Um, and there's things that you miss or you didn't hear the first time you listened to it. That that's kind of the the one thing I list. I I remember when either first listening to it or the hundredth time I listened to it.
talking about how big uh, it sounds. The song 10 and the way that the drums are produced. Um, they have this huge, really ambient room sound and it just sets the stage for like all of the essentially orchestration that happens after there where everything is living in this space that the drum sound creates. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of hear every single instrument kind of build off of each other. And, and it's kind of weird because I think it's the only song that really has that drum sound. Like it comes out of nowhere. And, but they build a whole song around it, so it kind of has purpose. It's just not a new drum sound for the sake of a new drum sound. It actually kind of sets the whole stage for the song. That's a really good point. That, that's, I've, you haven't, I haven't thought about that at all. Um, that's, that's actually interesting because you're right. It's, a, it's, different. it's different than all the whole of the record. I mentioned that listening back now, Your New Aesthetic is, my, is my, I think my favorite track on the record. Do you guys have a particular track that's your favorite from the album? Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, it's a toss-up. It's hard for me. Um, probably for me, this is heaven. Um, that song is is awesome. I I did an interview and they the one of the questions was what song do you want played at your funeral? And I would want that one um, played. So yeah, probably that one. Jay, um, I like your new aesthetic. I love that uh, that really dissonant guitar part before the in sort of the pre-chorus. It kind of sounds like a siren or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Clarity is probably my favorite song. I, I, you know, I, a lot of things come together for me on that song in terms of it's almost like a little summary of the whole record in terms of a lot of the different elements that you hear throughout the rest of the record. And then um, I just love the guitar riff and the chorus, and I love how it, uh, it's almost like a hook in itself, and uh, it's just a cool part. So, I mean, Lucky Denver Mint, it was, you know, the first song that I heard of theirs ever on the radio, like being like, holy crap, this band's on the radio and hearing the song on the radio is so, I don't know, it's still cool, I think, to hear it through the speakers of your car. Um, And also, you know, having uh, um, that song for me still gets a crazy reaction at the emo night or even, you know, when they play it live, it's like one of those ones that always, um, yes, it was a single, but it's also one of those ones that really connects with everybody. I I wonder if kids today, I hate to use that phrase, but get that sort of same feeling. Like I remember I was, I'm a big Wilco fan and I played Wilco a lot on college radio, but they didn't get played a lot on regular radio. I remember the first time I heard a Wilco song on like a mainstream radio station 
I was like, I can't believe other people are listening to this. I would go to a show and there'd be like 500 people there and yeah, it was cool, but not a lot of people were interested in Wilco. And I wonder if that, that sort of like little burst of energy that you get when the band that you've been listening to for one or two albums that nobody's heard all of a sudden is on like a major radio station, if that even happens anymore the way that it did back in the 90s or maybe even the 2000s. I've, I've definitely, I see it firsthand at emo night because early it's the older people. So it's like they want to hear minerals, Chrissy Front Drives, all this stuff. And then as it gets later, it turns into like early 2000s. So it's My Chemical Romance, Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, um, all like Newfound Glory, all that sort of time frame where it sort of went pop punk, uh, you know, emo. And you can like they'll say they'll come up and be like oh my god you have this record i haven't heard it since blah 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 and i used to you know drive to the shore and i mean taking back sunday definitely had with warner's help a lot Mm -hmm. of you know push on radio so that we always joke that if there's ever a lull and no one's paying attention play taking back sunday and the entire bar will start singing again so it's kind of like the um the uh, sweet child of mine or the um uh, bon jovi (laughs) the bon jovi karaoke of emo night um is 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 taking back sunday um or brand new especially on the east coast um i also know too it's, it's regional too so if certain people in new york new jersey their affinity towards certain bands is more for if i was on the west coast and i was doing the same night it'd be different um so anyway i just i know i analyze the but you, i can totally tell that they're they've they got amped just as much because at that moment it wasn't 98 it was 2003 and band x was playing and it got added on whatever radio station for a whole summer and then um they kind of had that connection to it it's funny that you mentioned regionalism, which I didn't really think of in terms of emo, but I guess there it, it is sort of a microcosm of the whole 90s, how there was you know, regional scenes that popped up. I mean, Seattle's the obvious one, but then Chicago and, and Boston and some other cities had some major major bands that were successful. But emo sort of became, or, or you know, emo had that same thing, but on a much smaller level, because there were Midwest bands that all mm-hmm. sort of like had somewhat similar sounds, but... You know, obviously they were probably playing shows together and stuff like that. But then you mentioned like the New York and East Coast scene having their sort of bands. And I then, mean, uh, the, the Midwest stuff is still. I mean, people still try and sound like Cap'n Jazz. Uh, they still try and sound like American football and this chaotic sort of uh, sound. It's still, you know, people are still trying to emulate that. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, you mentioned some. You you mentioned there there are bands today that are emulating that. Can you go into some of them? Because I'm not as familiar. I've heard names here and there, but some of our listeners I mean, might be interested. Yeah, great places to start. I don't want to mention too many band bands. I want like there's great labels like Count Your Lucky Stars, Top Shelf Records. Um, oh, why am I No Sleep is another one. Those three labels they've had. And uh, the other thing too is a lot of the bands. Some of them are just kind of doing it out of just what they're doing, like the VFW Hall kind of thing. And then other ones, you know, they do love, you know, Mineral or they do like, um, you know, if it's Promise Ring or something and you can kind of hear it. And it's a little influence of whatever other stuff they've got thrown in. So it's it's this whole resurgence. And I remember doing the site and I was really bummed out because no one cared about these old bands. I would talk about them and everyone was all about 
you know, those mid 2000s and it was like Stevens Untitled Rock Show and all those, you know, cover of AP and all those magazines. And I slowly later on started hearing about like the people would be like, Tom, there's this band that sounds like Mineral. I'm like, stop it. You're full of it. And I listened to it. I was like, holy crap. And what's even interesting now is those, so those top shelf for Count Your Lucky Stars, now there's people in, you know, there's bands in Russia that are trying to sound like that. There's this band, uh, Rika, R-A-K-A. I believe it's in, I forget in, where in Europe, but they sound like 1998 um, all over again. Um, so it's interesting how the kind of the cream rose to the top um, and kind of people are still discovering it and still finding a connection to it. All right. Well, last thoughts on this record. Cause uh, we just hit the hour mark and, and I spoke uh, way I'm, too much. No, I no, you, you were completely within <laughs> no. your uh, time frame. <laughs> well, I, I was glad you were able to come on the show because we reviewed, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Like maybe a half dozen emo bands, quote unquote. And, you know, we've sort of stumbled around the, you know, the genre as best we can. So I was really looking forward to having, having you on and actually get somebody who's way more informed. Um, so we don't have to be corrected on our own comments. I almost oh, feel yeah. like I should go down a list and be like, is this band emo or is there not emo? Yeah. And like, well, and remember the Jawbreaker episode? Is Jawbreaker well, yeah. emo? Well, see, that's the thing. It's, it's all kind of where you came from. And so many bands, they'll say like, yeah, like I never thought Jawbreaker was, but I've met a hundred people that say that that's emo to them. And I'm like, fine, you know? Uh, right. But I, I tried to relate it to touring. Like if, you know, Snapcase toured with Dashboard Confessional. Um, that was an actual tour. That, you know, I can see the kind of the connection. I'm not calling Snapcase emo, but at least Dashboard kind of was in that scene. And so, you know, my my interpretation of it is from a certain era and a time frame. And I try to look at the whole thing from if it's Fugazi on up, which is, you know, um, where I, I believe, you know, if it's Rites of Spring, Embrace, all those kind of bands um, on up. But again, someone that is younger could say 2002 was the Mecca. And, you know, I think Jimmy Eat World is, but I don't know what Promise Ring is. Or it, it's, it's all kind of relative. But you know, I, I try to put a list on my site of, you know, bands that here's where you start. And it's kind of that booklet. It's where you looked in the back of the booklet of the CD or the vinyl and you sort of looked at who they thanked. And then you started to make the correlations. Yeah, we need that booklet. We need, we need that <laughs> reference. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna su- suggest that, like us, which we will do to confirm our or uh, uh, eradicate our erroneous beliefs, you should head over to um, the Washed Up Emo podcast at washedupemo.com. And uh, seriously, there are some like awesome interviews. I suggest that people go check that out because uh, you're going to have many, many hours. I mean, you got Blair Sheehan from Knapsack. I tried to get that for like weeks and they were just like not responding. So I'm, I don't I'm know what it totally is. Totally jealous of that. I apologize. I, I for some Stop reason. Stop stealing all the interviews. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to uh, get everybody. Um, um, I mean, there's the promise ring one was hilarious. My headset crapped out halfway through it. I had to convince them to, to finish it. Like, fun, there's all these like, how it happened is you know surreal in itself. Um, I had one other funny story for Goodbye Sky or for Clarity. If you guys have five seconds, sure, go ahead. 
Goodbye Sky Harbor, they were doing the Clarity Tour. And I started a petition online at the time to, for them to play the full 16 minutes because on their previous tours, they do a six minute version, which is a couple of noodling and then it's like, you know, loud, soft, Nirvana. Great. I wanted the whole thing. And I, I remember, you know, getting some pickup on AP or whatever and people mentioning it. And um, it was in my still snarky days of Wash Up Emo before I calmed down. And um, I remember the band and Zach was on some like live stream or something, and I just remember him saying, "He's like, and some dumbass or jerk has like a petition to play the whole thing, and they just all start laughing." Um, so that uh, that made me smile. <laughs> nice <laughs> that they like were laughing at that, but right. they did play a 12 minute version for the Clarity Tour, so. Um, I feel like I have somewhat of a part in that. Like, I feel like they're at some practice and they're like, I guess we got to do something. <laughs> you have to appease. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should, uh, I think we should wrap this one up, put it on a bow. And I did check out just now as you were um, regaling us with your harassment of Jimmy World history lesson. <laughs> it's on your website. You click it and it says educate. The button says educate and it gives you a list of all the bands uh, in alphabetical order, A through Z, and their Wikipedia page, which is uh, useful. That's you're welcome. Nice job, as well as the uh, links to interviews uh, for all the bands that uh, now Coheed and Cambria. I never thought of them as being an emo band, but I'm going to take your so word on it because you're you I, have a doctorate in this. I don't know about that. Actually, it's funny you mention that. I'm being asked to teach a class um, on the history of emo. Which is hilarious. I will not name the school, but it's not small. <laughs> wow. Does it start with it's... an N and end with a Y-U? No, it does not. <laughs> but I have been asked to do that. So maybe there'll be a doctorate or a honorary. Um, but Kohi, I actually worked um, that record. Um, or not the first one, but the, the, the second one. And they definitely get looped into that time frame. And... Um, uh, you guys should come for Emo Night one night just to see the reaction of some of these songs. Um, if I play Everything Evil, um, it's, you know, Bedlam. Um, so that era, definitely, all the, you know, they were playing with all those same bands. But Jay anyway, is way more in the, uh, in the Coheed and Cam- Cambria camp than I am. That's, I don't know. I don't understand how you can not like that band. I just have never gotten, they've never really made sense to me. I don't know. Where did you say. start? Where did you start? What record? Just probably whatever was on the radio back when they were sort of uh, getting radio play. So you heard your your you heard uh, your what is it uh, favorite house Atlantic? That's you might have heard that song. Possibly but the first record, Second Stage, Turbine Blade. That came out and it turned people on their heads. And it was one of those bands that bands tried to emulate it and or try to do it and and couldn't it was that kind of record it wasn't like okay you just made a hardcore record but like they turned it on its head like no one was sounding like that now wait i'm confused now you don't have cursive on here is cursive not on there i should cursive is without i'm finding some flaws in the uh in the matrix here so i did that i did that list maybe at like 2 a.m one night so I've actually had people write me and say, hey, could you add this band? And I'm like, oh, thanks. So if I should add cursive, I will add cursive. Well, I don't, I, you know, that might be a, de- a debate for another episode. No, no, cursive is but, 100%. Uh, 
No, they wrote a whole record about a divorce. Uh, yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, it doesn't get much any more emo than that. <laughs> yeah, the it, have you guys done the Domestica record? No, and that's a hard one because Jay and I, I think are such big fans of that band. We've sort of shied away from actually reviewing the bands that we really, really like because it's so, so hard to like have a... <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> Why'd you have me on this one then? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, because I think there was a lack of familiarity that Jay and I wanted to strengthen our, our knowledge of this record. And since you have a, a doctorate and you're a professor of emo... Yes, uh, <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, what other ones am I missing? That's the only one I've found. found super, I will send you an email at two a.m. Uh, I will with be up and my I list will of uh, the ones that have missed. So, I just want to say, but, you guys are like, I love your podcast. I love like, I think it's got a niche, and that's what makes these things work. Um, it's not all over the place. It's like you guys have this set time or set kind of focus, and um, I think it's awesome. Thank you. Cool. That's uh, that's better than some of the uh, response we've gotten back when people go, "You're an asshole for slamming <laughs> <laughs> Wink Walt Mink," and uh, we appreciate. Jawbreaker. Yeah. Uh, well, the Jawbreaker one was slam. tough because we didn't slam it. We were just sort of like confused, and then on the Onion AV Club caught on to that, and we're like, "These guys are dipshits." They oh, and then we had a bad month after here. that of just sort of depressed and like the onion thinks we suck. We pissed uh, off the onion. They, they, uh, they were super nice to me for some reason, and I didn't even know them. Like they found it out of the blue. So yeah, they're they're pretty well, hot and because you have an excellent podcast. That well, is, uh, yeah. Thank you, but it's, <laughs> I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time. Uh, um, I have actually have some really good ones coming up. Um, so yeah, everyone should be stoked. And if there's any like hate mail or any, like you said something stupid or you're wrong, like feel free to tell me cause, uh, we're all, we all make mistakes and I'll go cry. Cause that's what, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> uh, we just claim like, we're not claiming to be right. We're not saying our opinions are better than yours. We're just, we're opening the door for the conversation. Please share your yeah. comments. You know, you just talk about the record. You can tell us we're idiots. That's fine. But you know, just speak up. Exactly. Speaking of speaking up, no, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for, for coming on. And um, when we do get to that Domestica album, uh, you should join us because uh, that's a good record. But I don't think it'll be this year. Jay and I have to work it up to that one. There's a, there's a couple in the Pantheon that are going to be a little hard for us to uh, have objective opinions on. Nice. All of our favorite bands in the '90s, Tim and I have basically like set aside and have never touched on this podcast, other than maybe Which one ones? or two. Well, well, we haven't done an Afghan Wigs record. Nice. Yeah. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It thank was you. Awesome. Everybody, go to washedupemo.com. And Jay, uh, thanks again for joining me. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. <laughs> <laughs>